When I was growing up, all of our family vacations were always driving trips. And part of this is probably because we didn't want to pay for the airfare. But part of it was because we enjoyed seeing different sites along the way. And even though we were maybe driving to California, or maybe we were driving to Colorado, or driving anywhere up and down the East Coast, we'd be going to different cities, different locations, we had different things in the itinerary, but there was always one constant with every family trip. And that was that we were going to go to some type of old military site. My dad is a big military history buff, and so he would take us to various battlefields growing up. And my twin sister and I, as 10-year-olds, would get bored as he told us the date that this happened and the date this happened to the point where we would just count cannons. Um, but there was a part of the trip that I always enjoyed, though. It was whenever we would go to a fort. I loved looking at forts, walking around a fort, and, and seeing where they put the cannons and the various walls and the protection. And I loved to try and put myself into the shoes of the people that must have lived in this fort at some point. What did it look like when people tried to invade? What did it look like when people tried to attack? And, and, and what did the, the battle look like as it unfolded? Um, but then as I would look around at the ruins of the fort, I would always arrive at a point wondering, how did this thing fall apart? And why has it been rebuilt? My name is Alan White, and I'm the host of today's podcast. We're going to be looking at the story of Nehemiah and Nehemiah leading the people back to Jerusalem after exile, finding the walls in ruins, and they go about rebuilding, and the unique calling that we find inside of that rebuilding process. We'll also hear later on an interview from some teachers who serve a very, very important role in our community in the lives of students as students seek to build and rebuild their lives. Welcome to Eternal Time. Turtle Time is brought to you by Camp Lighthouse, which provides a free Christian camp for kids who otherwise could not experience it. Camp Lighthouse has a vision to be the light of Jesus in a dark and broken world, one person at a time. This is also the purpose of this podcast, where we will dive into biblical truth and hear insightful interviews from ministry leaders who are living out those truths each day. Turtle Time is the name of the rest time period during the summer camp ministry at Camp Lighthouse. So our hope is that you will experience a little rest in the middle of your busy and chaotic week. Thanks for listening. So today we're going to be looking at the return of the nation of Israel uh, to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. And if you read through the Old Testament, we can see where, especially in First and Second Chronicles, there's this, this history of the, the kings of Israel and the different leaders and the building of the temple. And we see that David's not allowed to build the temple because he's a man of war. And then we see that his son Solomon is allowed to build the temple because he's a man of peace. And we can see the ebbs and the flows and the, the positives and the negatives within all of these leaders. But all throughout the way, we can see this constant rebellious heart of the, of the nation of Israel, where the Israelites are they're walking with God and they're following God, and then they're no longer doing so. And they rebel so many times and they decide that they're going to do life their own way so many times that God eventually just says, okay, fine, you can choose to live life your own way, but because of that, I'm going to allow others to come in and conquer you. And so at this point, the Babylonians come in and they, and they sack Jerusalem, they attack Jerusalem, and they take away the majority of the people into captivity and into exile. And so historically speaking, they, they would have been in captivity and in the, in the exile for about 50 years in Babylon. Uh, the, the Persians would have conquered them at some point. Basically, they went through several different iterations of being conquered and being enslaved. But as they're in this particular exile period, they've been there for about 50 years. And then at some point, Zerubbabel, one of the leaders inside of the nation of Israel, goes to the king at that time and says, can I go back and can I 
rebuild the temple. And really we find this in First and Second Chronicles, and then we see this in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And all of those books could be read really as one package in terms of this particular point in the nation of Israel's history. But Zerubbabel goes back about 50 years after the Babylonian exile begins and begins to rebuild the temple. And so God's house, God's presence is being rebuilt in Jerusalem so that the people have a place of worship to come back to. And then about 60 years later after that, Ezra returns to Jerusalem and he is all about restoring the community, all about restoring God's people to following the Torah, to following God's law. And so he begins working not so much on physical rebuilding, but on the the social and the political and the spiritual rebuilding that needs to happen amongst these people that have been gone and living with with different religions and different faith backgrounds and a different culture for several generations now at this point. How do we come back and rebuild God's nation, God's kingdom, God's people inside the area of Jerusalem and how to reestablish that community? And so Ezra comes back next. And then finally, we get to the book that we're going to be examining today, which is where Nehemiah comes back on the scene. So in chapter one of Nehemiah, this is what unfolds. We see Nehemiah really pouring his heart out to the king and saying, can I please have permission to take a group of people to be protected along the way that I might be able to go back and rebuild the walls that surround essentially the city of my my forefathers. And so in chapter one, he gets permission to go back and then he arrives back on the scene in Jerusalem. And then in chapter two, he goes out and he does a survey. And you can see the brokenness of his heart as he walks around the city and he sees the gates burned down and he sees the walls in shambles and he sees ruins and stones all over the place. And a city that was once great, a city that was once the epicenter of the nation of Israel has now become the laughing stock of the region and has become a place of dishonor and a place that's not even protected. And so Nehemiah walks around the walls and says, we've got to rebuild this. We need to enlist every able-bodied person that we can to begin the process of rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem so that the temple, our, our house of worship, so that our city, so that our place is safe and protected from the outside forces that would seek to do us harm. And it moves on into chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we see that different households and different family groups, obviously it was still a very family-driven, very tribally-driven society. And so broken into family groups, broken into community groups, they're assigned different places around the wall. You know, this wasn't like a fence around a house in suburbia. It wasn't like it was just 100 feet of wall. It was hundreds upon thousands of feet of wall that had to be rebuilt surrounding the city. And so each of these different family groups is assigned saying, this is your section of the wall. And everybody and their servants and their guards, everyone needs to be involved in the rebuilding of this wall. And so chapter 3, we see the assignments of everything from the dung gate to the more important places that were around the city. Here's here's who was assigned to, to rebuild everybody. So that's, that's the scene that we step into in chapter 4, which is the chapter I really want to look at in today's podcast. So they have their assignments. They know what they're supposed to rebuild. And then, as we see in chapter 4, Houston we have a problem because as they've been rebuilding, the the neighbors, the, the people that have been living there for the past several generations since the exile are looking on and they're beginning to feel probably threatened by the return of the nation of Israel, by the, by the growth of the nation of Israel, but also beginning to feel like we're going to lose our power in the region. And so in Nehemiah chapter four, this is how the first few verses go. 
It says, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. And so we see that these two leaders that are outside of the city that are from rival tribes. And if you look at some of the history, we won't have time to go in that today. These are both tribes that have been at war and have had conflict with the nation of Israel for generations upon generations. And so there's already an animosity there of these are the other people. Um, and so they're, they're threatening then to attack the walls. And Nehemiah sees this threat. He sees our neighbors, our enemies are essentially licking their lips. They're sharpening their knives and they're ready to come and attack us because they don't want us to rebuild the broken walls of our life. They don't want us to rebuild the walls around our holy city. They don't want us to reestablish God's presence here amongst his people and really his representation of power on earth in the context of his people at that time. And so Nehemiah looks around and sees this as a great threat. And in his wisdom, he does this. Beginning in verse 13, this is Nehemiah speaking. It says, Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest point of the wall at the exposed places posting them by families with their sword, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to work, each to our own parts. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armors. And it goes on to describe the scene, but here's essentially what happened. He took his workforce, Nehemiah did, and he split it in half. And he had half continue to build the wall of their broken down lives. And he posted the other half to stand in the gap. The other half had to stand there and guard while the others rebuilt. And that's the application that I want us to dig into in today's podcast, is that we all, at different times in our lives, have to rebuild the walls. At different times in our lives, we go through different heartaches, different pain, different trials, different tribulations. And at the end of that, we find the walls of our life, that the city of our life, deconstructed in just a pile of rubble. And it's important for us to have the time and take the time to spiritually, mentally, physically rebuild those walls. But the outside world is always going to seek to stop us. Satan is always going to seek to stop us. And, and so we're, we're vulnerable, especially during those rebuilding times. And so what we find in the story of Nehemiah is this beautiful picture of a role that I believe each of us is called to, which is to stand in the gap. Imagine that you were a worker in that time and you were tasked with putting brick upon brick upon brick and you're exhausted and then a rival army group comes running at you and you have no protection. The amount of fear that would exist in that moment. You'd probably run and flee for your life and you would give up on the rebuilding process. Similarly, when we're trying to rebuild our lives and don't feel that place of protection, we don't feel like we have somebody standing in the gap for us, it becomes difficult then for us to be able to do the hard work to rebuild that. And so 
what I find inside of Nehemiah chapter 4, besides of a, um, an internal calling for us to assess our own lives and assess where is it that God is calling us to rebuild our lives, probably more externally speaking in this story, we find our calling to stand in the gap for other people. That, that we would be the ones holding the shield, that we would be the ones holding the spears to protect people from the outside world that they're experiencing. And, and there's so many different ways that, that I've experienced this in my own life. When I was growing up in the neighborhood, there was these this group of five or six boys that were probably three or four years older than us, but they seemed like they were a decade older than us because they were enormous. And when we were in the third or fourth grade, they were probably in seventh or eighth grade, and they were like movie bullies. And they did things like movie bullies would do where they would make you pay a toll to walk down the neighborhood road. They took our shoes and would throw them over the fence where there was some kind of dog and we'd have to climb over the fence and run away from the dog to get our shoes. And so your typical neighborhood bullies. Well, there's one day where my dad was running. My dad always ran in our neighborhood and he ran by and all of my friends and I were barefoot. And he asked us, where'd your shoes go? And I said, well, then you know, the usual neighborhood bullies took our shoes and threw them over that fence over there, but the fence has a beware of dog sign, so there's no way that we're going to jump over there and try and go get them as a bunch of third and fourth graders. And my dad takes off sprinting because he can see the older boys in a distance riding their bikes, and he tracks them down, he grabs their bike by the handlebars, and then proceeds to walk them back home to their house to share this story with their parents. And so I've seen my dad do that when I was younger, and that we were... And just a, an innocuous thing of walking down the street and then these bullies pop out and take our shoes. And my dad went and physically stood in the gap for us to make sure that we could get our shoes back. Later on in life, though, in a much more painful scenario, I'd experienced a lot of heartache and a lot of rejection and a lot of pain during a season that I had in high school. And I, I felt as if I probably didn't have anybody else to lean on. And in that season, a pastor of mine walked alongside me and he prayed with me and he, he gave me advice, but probably most importantly, he simply spent time with me. Uh, he showed me that while I was trying to, to rebuild the, the walls and, and put the pieces back together of my life, that largely I had messed up myself and some mistakes that I had made, that he was going to stand there for as long as it took for me to feel like I was, especially spiritually, but most definitely uh, mentally and emotionally whole as well. And so I found him standing in that gap mainly by just spending time with me, by caring for me, by showing me that even though the world might come up against you, I'm still going to stand by your side. When I got to my first ministry posting, I was 23 years old. I was a brand new youth pastor. And you know, going into that, I'm thinking that youth ministry is all about doing biblical messages and worship and games and retreats and all of the fun parts of ministry. But about a month after I got there, two significant things happened. One of my teenage boys found out that his father had been diagnosed with brain cancer. And I didn't have much of a relationship with the student at this time. Again, I'd only been there for a month. He was 16 or 17 at the time. But I remember going to pick him up at his house. His parents had called me and said, hey, we've got some bad um, health news from the hospital. We need you to go and pick up this student and drive him to us at the hospital. And so I went and picked him up and drove down there with him. And then we found out the news together. And then he and I went to eat at Arby's. I'll never forget it. We went to eat at Arby's afterwards on the way home. And what began after that was a relationship where I essentially made it a commitment to this young man. I'm going to stand in the gap with you while you rebuild during this painful season. I had one of my students, again, going back to my first month of youth ministry, 
and I'm thinking it's all going to be fun and easy and games. And I had another student whose parents were going through a really painful divorce, and she was vulnerable enough with me to share where her walls had been broken down, where her life had kind of been a bit of a, of a ruin around her, and gave me permission to stand in that gap and to, to listen to her pain and to, again, give advice when I could, but mainly just by standing by her side and being the person that would try and hold the shield that would protect her from other arrows that the world was seeking to, to shoot at her. Again, it was such a, a gift to get to do that. Um, and so we can see in Scripture where in Nehemiah 4, I believe all of us are called to stand in the gap for other people. And so that's a calling that I feel like each of us has as we talk about how is it that we can be a light in a dark and broken world. I believe one of the ways that we can do that is by standing in the gap for others when they go through their most painful season, when people lose loved ones, when people go through painful divorces and breakups, when they hear bad news from, from, from a health perspective, when they're going through broken um, circumstances in their life, when they feel lonely, when they feel afraid, when they feel anxious, when they feel depressed. All of those arrows are things that the enemy is seeking to shoot at each of us so that our walls might stay broken down, so that he can get in easier and so that he can really get to what he wants to, which is the presence of the Lord in our life. Remember, the walls of Jerusalem were there to protect the city and most importantly, protect the temple, which represented God's presence amongst his people. And so what the enemy most wants to do to each of us is to go through the cracks in our wall that he might rob us of our joy and rob us of our relationship with God by distracting us and pulling us away. And so one of the most beautiful callings that all of us can can take on is to stand in the gap for other people when they're experiencing that pain, when they're experiencing that trial, when they're experiencing their, their walls being broken down. And we do this by encouragement. We do this by spending time with people. Sometimes we do this by actually physically standing in the gap for people and taking some of their burdens on for them when there are times where they can't carry their own burdens. And so regardless of your life circumstance, your background, your ministry calling, your education level, I believe there's people in your life right now whose walls are broken down, whose city has crumbled around and they're in danger of, of losing their joy, of the enemy coming in and stealing their hope. So I believe that you're called to stand in the gap for those people in your lives. One group of people who stand in the gap for people on a daily basis are educators. They're on the front lines with our students. And they regularly stand in the gap for these kids from a mental, emotional, and spiritual standpoint. In just a moment, we'll hear an interview with Allison Reeves and some teachers from Mount Pisgah Christian School as they talk about what it looks like to stand in the gap for their students. We'll be right back. Turtle Time is brought to you by Camp Lighthouse, which provides a free Christian camp for kids who otherwise could not experience it. Camp Lighthouse does this by partnering with various homeless transitional centers and community ministries around Atlanta. They bring their kids to camp for several days and nights of fun, fellowship, laughter, and worship. The goal is for each camper to have their own counselor. This allows the counselor the opportunity to be the light of Jesus in each child's life in a real and deeply relational way. If you would like to learn more about this ministry or how you can support it, go to camplighthouse.org. All donations go directly towards helping kids experience the light of Jesus, one person at a time. Now, back to our show. 
listeners, this is Allison Reeves, and I'm here with a couple of awesome teachers from Mount Pisgah Christian School. We've got Allie Ott, who teaches sixth grade math. We've got Nisha Lewis, who teaches band. And we've got Nathaniel Hilliard, who teaches all of our middle school boys' Bible. Whoa. It's a lot. It's yeah. a lot. <laughs> um, but we're going to talk today about what it looks like to stand in the gap for kids. Um, I know that we spoke earlier with Alan about um, how Nehemiah had all of the Israelites standing in the gap while the wall was being built, um, and how we actually, as people, we can do that for each other. And being teachers, we have a really unique job where we stand in the gap for kids um, in a lot of different ways, academically, um, spiritually, emotionally, and sometimes even physically having to um, keep them out of trouble. So I have these awesome teachers here, and I know that in my classroom, Standing in the Gap um, looks like using the arts and using creativity to inspire kids who might not feel like they are a part of something academically, um, or maybe it's just in addition to their academic talents. And that's kind of similar to what happens uh, with you, Nisha, in band. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, especially um, I see it a lot where I'll have siblings, and uh, maybe one sibling is maybe more adept at sports, and mm -hmm. they, they can yeah. kind of connect with their dads or moms who are athletic, and maybe feel like they don't have a specific place maybe in the athletic sense or in other areas of school, but, you know, they might feel like they have that space and to be themselves and to kind of, you know, um, you know, feel content and feel confident in who they are. So I think being in the arts with you, you can kind of see that a lot where they get to, you know, just kind of be themselves and, you know, just feel like they have a place to belong at school. Oh, man, the sibling thing, that is so mm. hard when – siblings have different skills and some of them shine mm -hmm. in different aspects than others. Mm -hmm. Do you see that in your well, core academics with math? Alan? You know, and I was just thinking off of what you were saying, Nisha, um, you know, that excitement to be who God created them to be and, and to stand in the gap to remind them that, hey, God didn't make us all the same. Mm -hmm. And there is purpose and design in that. Um, and and to, to really have them enter into that idea, you know, they're walking through probably, I would say, the largest moment in their lives that the comparison trap is mm -hmm. so big and we all want to be the same. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because we weren't created to be the same. Right. Um, and so for me, teaching math, especially because everybody, you know, like popcorn, they pop at different times. And so... I love being able to do that uh, with my students and and to really just remind them, allow them to let go of those expectations that, oh, so-and-so has this or, you know, they get it this quickly or whatever it is, um, just to remind them that, you know, God created us all different um, because he has a purpose for us. And so if we can, you know, switch our focus from, oh, I'm not enough or I'm not good enough or fast enough or smart enough, then we can really do some great kingdom work, um, you know, within these four walls, but then also outside of these four walls. So. Yeah, I think that is a really great point, Allie, and I, I think a lot of times, like, we as educators understand that, but I think a lot of times with parents, they may be like, well, you know, 
this my first child was able mm. to do this so easily like why is this a struggle for you and I think that is a good opportunity for us to be able to stand in the gap there and be like and reassure that child that hey like I said we are not all the same we are God mm-hmm. created us um, as individuals and and I think that sometimes we can you know provide that for the students and kind of you know help the parents understand that as well mm-hmm. that you know just because you know your first child was able to do this your second child is a completely different person you know so yeah um, with different strengths and abilities and you know I think this. about that with I have a one-year-old daughter, and I think about the checklist that they give you, like the development milestones. Oh, Oh my gosh. Cause of stress, right? They do. It's so weird. Like, if they're not crawling by a certain age, you start to, like, do the comparison trap Mm -hmm. at at the age of eight months. Mm -hmm. How sad is that? But you're right. Like, the way that we can stand and help kids to understand that God created them unique Mm -hmm. is to break out of that. Mm -hmm. Like, we, we will all get to a place that we need to eventually, it might take you longer, or your set of skills might be completely different than somebody else's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I think, just think about that question, seeing the gap for kids in Bible class. We're talking middle schoolers, which middle schoolers are weird, they're crazy, but they're asking different questions. A fifth grader is asking different questions in an elementary school, or sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. They're starting to ask some big questions. And so for me, I feel like my role in a lot of ways and our role as teachers, especially here at a Christian school, we get to kind of hold that space for kids as they're asking their big questions because mm-hmm. yeah. they really are. They're, they're hearing and seeing and experiencing things that they haven't seen or heard or experienced before. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get to come here and wrestle with some of those questions and what does the word say about it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so to, to kind of be there for those mm-hmm. big questions as, they're, as middle schools are changing so much, like the most change that they'll experience in their life is happening within these years that they're here in middle school and being all weird and awkward. <laughs> but how can we make space to Speaking. help them understand what truth is as they're changing, as they're figuring out their identity and mm-hmm. who they are? Um, I feel like that's a big role mm-hmm. for all of us mm-hmm. yeah. here. Especially well, for those kids who don't, you know, always maybe get to go to church every Sunday mm-hmm. or aren't a part of those small groups and mm-hmm. maybe maybe their parents aren't Christian and they're trying to decide if that's something that they want to, you know, commit their lives to and I feel like if those children aren't getting that kind of spiritual nourishment from their, at home um, we really can stay in that gap here, you know, and like you said when they ask those questions and if they don't get it in other places, like we can be a source of, you know, the truth to them. Yeah, we all agree in this room that um, teaching is a calling mm-hmm. on your life, and so I, I, I think about, you know, the students that I teach every year and how we essentially raise them. I mean, like we're with them for eight hours a day, and sometimes even more if we're coaching them, and so. Um, the, the honor and privilege of standing in the gaps. Um, I mean, you know, we've had it, we, we stand in the gap when we um, teach and walk alongside of them when we're um, just showing them how to, oh, I don't know, work out different differences within um, their relationships, mm-hmm. how to navigate, you know, godly yeah. conflict yeah. Um, and how to honor other people in that. Um, it's, it's 
it's a privilege that I feel like, um, you know, being able to create the safe environment to where they feel, you know, that we are there for them really opens up the door for them to seek mm-hmm. us in those situations. Whereas, you know, it's difficult to ask mom and dad sometimes or even grandma because I don't know. I, for me, I always wanted to please and perform for my parents. Mm-hmm. So um, having a teacher who's also a mentor to be able to, to do that and teach me, you know, X, Y, Z, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a blessing. It is a blessing. I, I love that, you know, it says statistically, I know this is somewhere. <laughs> it sounds seen, like math. Statistically, my dad loves to bring up this particular statistic, um, but that the more adult Christians that pour into a child's life, the higher likeliness that they will remain a Christian their entire life. And that's not including your parents. Because, of course, your mm-hmm. parents are a huge influence on your faith. But the more Christian adults that a kid has in their life, I mean, wow, what an impact that's going to have in their lifelong faith. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's really cool to be able to share our faith. We're in a unique position working in a private Christian school. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that you can also do that in other ways, really in any job that you have. Um, when I previously worked in public school, I wore a cross just so that kids would know. And I didn't have to say anything, but some of them knew and you know would initiate conversations with me um, in my room after school or after class and, and ask certain questions about faith. And I know that a lot of us um, have experienced other Christian adults pouring into us. And so I think what a cool way that we just have a unique position to pour into kids and stand in the gap as Christian educators. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for me, I had several people at my church like these, and they weren't young. Like there was like, there was a dude at our school, at our church, uh, Mr. Lussie, who's like in his 80s when he was mm-hmm. one, of, one of my youth volunteer leaders. And it was just him, like, showing up and being present. And um, not that I needed another grandpa or I needed another, <laughs> but he was one of those guys that he, he always, uh, we knew that Mr. Leslie was going to pray for you. We knew he was going to come to your baseball, football game, That's whatever. Cool. And I don't know, that connection, I, I just fondly remember mm-hmm. him being present um, and, and available for me during those weird, yeah. weird years. He showed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and see, I had the opposite of that. I didn't have anybody, you know. So when when the turmoil came, you know, going into college, it was like I, I was just lost. And then um, when Jesus, you know, got a hold of my heart at 19, I, I just, I knew. I, I, I almost audibly heard him, you know, tell me, like, this is what I want you to do. You know, so that I could be that for somebody. Thank you for listening to our podcast today on Standing in the Gap. Now go be a light in a dark and broken world, one person at a time. We'll see you next time.